0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 3. And as you know, the Psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament. And they're meant to be sung, meant to have musical arrangements. And so we won't do it every week, but from time to time, we will sing a psalm through composed. So this is the ESV put to music. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, oh, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. In the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people.
1: One uh, one of the most obvious aspects of the Psalms is their universal relevance. For thousands of years, men and women, young and old, different races, cultures, social classes have all found comfort, encouragement from the Psalms. There's a, a universal resonance to these songs. They're songs of the saints, the songs of the people of God, and often this is because the psalmist universalizes his sorrows and troubles. He doesn't doesn't tell you the particulars of what's going on. Um, Instead, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He doesn't give us the particulars. Instead, we fill in our own particulars. And so the psalm has that universal relevance and resonance. But... Sometimes the Psalms do get particular. They give us details about the original setting, and they do this in order that by seeing that universal dimension in the original particular situation, we can better bring that universal dimension home to our particular situation. Like, like, like we want, what we want when we're going to the Psalms is we want that universal, transcultural, age-to-age, the same truth to come home here to meet me here, to meet us here, and sometimes one of the best ways for that universal to land in our particular is to see how that universal emerged from David's particular. Like, we need to see where did it come from, what came, what was going on that produced this psalm, and that helps us see how we can bring it home better. That's what's happening in Psalm 3. Notice the superscript at the beginning, that little dedication. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The text locates this particular psalm in a particular time in David's life. And so in today's sermon, what I want to do is draw two lines, okay? I want to to have this universal truth, the psalm itself, and I want to draw some lines back to David's life, and then I and then having done that, I want to draw the lines forward to its universal relevance and resonance for us. So that's the plan. We're just gonna, we're gonna walk through it and we're gonna go back to David, 2 Samuel chapters 14 to 19, and then forward to ourselves. But before we do that, I want to remind us of a few things about the Psalms from the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan noted that the Psalms, as the central book of the Old Testament writings testifies to the fact that there is a future hope for the house of David. The house of David is the messianic house, the royal line through whom all the promises to Moses, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, all the way back to Noah and Adam, all of those promises will be fulfilled now through the line of David. And by the end of the Old Testament, the house of David is in disarray. The people are exiled to Babylon, then they're brought back and they're governed by Gentile kings and not by a Davidic king. And so the Psalms in that setting are a continuing witness that the promises are true. The plan has not failed. There is a future hope for the house of David and therefore for Israel and therefore for the world. And last week, Ryan Griffith explored Psalm 2 as a particular messianic psalm, an enthronement psalm for the Davidic king that ultimately points us forward to jesus the messiah who is established by god resisted by the nations but triumphant over them and in whom all of us must take refuge lest we perish in the way and though this isn't always the case sometimes the arrangement of these psalms this is something as you're reading through and we're we're walking through the series you should keep your your mind alert for as you read Sometimes the arrangement, like why does one psalm follow another psalm, is based on shared words or themes between them. So, for example, there's a number of links between Psalm 3 and Psalm 2. Like both of them mention the enemies of God and his Messiah surrounding. Both of them mention um, God's holy hill, Mount Zion. Um, so, God decrees from Mount Zion and establishes the Messiah, and then here God answers the prayers of, the, of David from his holy hill. And then finally, both Psalms, like Psalm 1, all mention the blessing of God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Your blessing be on your people. So there are these links between Psalm 3 and Psalm 2 that probably accounts for why did it get placed here in the book as a whole. But Psalm 3 doesn't just repeat Psalm 2. It carries forward. There's a new theme. It's a really important one in the book of Psalms and in your Bible. And it's the theme of salvation. Did you hear it? When Nick was singing, right? The psalm begins with many saying, There is no salvation for him in God. And then by the end, David is saying, Save me, oh my God, and then declares, Salvation belongs to the Lord. So you you hear that theme just running through. That's new. That wasn't in Psalm 1 or Psalm 2. But now it's, There's no salvation. Save me! Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what this psalm brings forward. Now, with that, as a little brief background, I want us to look at a four-step movement in this psalm, four steps as we walk through these verses. And as we do, I'm gonna draw those connections back to 2 Samuel uh, 14 to 19, maybe even as far back as 2 Samuel 9 in some cases, so that we can honor that superscript that says, this was a psalm that emerged from David's flight from his son Absalom. And then at each step, I'm going to then draw those lines forward to implications and applications for us today. And so one way to think about this, these four-step movement of the psalm, is a kind of model for how to face trials and opposition. And then in this model, I'm going to give you a case study, the life of David that produced the psalm. Does that make sense? So there's these four steps. This is for all of us. When we're facing trials and hardship, here's four steps of what the psalmist does. It's not the only thing the psalmist does, but it's one way. And here's a, here's a, a case study that produced it. So that's what we're going to do. So number one, what's the first movement in this psalm? Number one is this: tell God what's happening. Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Tell God what's happening. I seem. This may seem a little bit odd. Doesn't God already know what's happening? In fact, doesn't he know it better than I do? Why am I informing God of my enemies and of what they're saying? He heard them the first time. He doesn't need me to inform him of something that... He doesn't know. Yes, and it's true. God does know. He does see. He knows better than us. But what the psalm is indicating is tell him anyway. There's something valuable and good about you bringing to God information that he already knows and which you know, but which you need to bring him in order to get help to deal with what's happening. You should bring your reality including and especially your felt reality to the lord. So let me explain what that what I mean by that. Reality is what's actually happening. Like it's objective, it's just real. Felt reality is what's happening from your vantage point and includes all of your response to what's happening. Does that make sense? Like, reality is objective. It's just there. And then felt reality is both what's objective and what you're doing in response, your feelings, your perspective, your vantage point. And this psalm is saying, bring all of that. Bring all of it to God. Like, what are you facing? What do you see out there before you? What are other people saying about it? Bring all of it to God. Lay it before him. No pretense. Like, don't try to pretend that it's not really there and you're not really feeling it. Like, no fakery, no putting on airs. Don't deny reality, either the objective one or the internal one. Bring all of it to God. Now, this is where it's really helpful to think about what David was bringing to God. What felt reality was David bringing to God? And that's where the story is important. So, I'm going to summarize some of the, the details of the latter half of David's life. I just encourage you at some point to take Psalm 3 and go do a Bible study. Start in 2 Samuel. You can start about chapter 9 or so and just read up to about 19 or 20 and just see the connections. I'm going to draw out a bunch of them, but you'll get more out of it if you go and look for yourselves. Okay, so this is after David sinned with Bathsheba. This is after David repented when Nathan confronted him. Now, David has many sons and daughters by many different wives. Absalom and Tamar are siblings from one wife. Amnon is a sibling from a different wife. So they're Absalom and Amnon are half-siblings. They're David's kids, both of them from David, but different mothers, okay? Amnon, we find out, violates Tamar in a very uh, horrific way and then casts her out. And David, we're told, is angry but doesn't do anything about it. And because he doesn't do anything about it, Absalom, Tamar's brother, takes vengeance himself, lays a trap for Amnon, and then kills him. Okay? And one of the things that that progression, that story from David and Bathsheba to Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon, one of the things it's showing us is, it, is the way that sin multiplies generationally. It's one of the points of that story. Just as David violated the marriage bed with Bathsheba, Amnon takes that violation to another level. Just as David secretly had Uriah killed, that's Bathsheba's husband, so Absalom takes it to another level because he kills Amnon in public where everyone can see. Doesn't even hide it. So in other words, what David does in secret, his sons do more grossly and horrifically and publicly. There's a lesson here. You reap what you sow. The harvest is greater than the seed that you originally planted. So Absalom then, after he kills Amnon, flees Jerusalem, and he goes and lives among the Gentiles for a few years before he's eventually brought back to Jerusalem, and he's welcomed back into the king's presence. That's 2 Samuel 14. Okay, so that's where we are. Now, Absalom's very handsome. He's very impressive. In fact, the Bible belabors how much his hair weighs because apparently that was the thing, which means Easterwood, you and me, we're out of luck, okay? It's no good. But Absalom, it talks about how he would cut his hair once a year and they would like weigh how much his hair was and everybody was like, look how much his hair weighs and he's amazing. And I'm just like, I'm not, it's not impressive. I I don't think I don't know about that. So he's got this long hair. He's very impressive. He's very handsome. And he begins in chapter 14 to plot to overthrow his father. So what he would do is he would go stand in the city gates of Jerusalem as people are coming to the city with their grievances, and he would stop them before they could get to the court, and he would say, oh, let me, hey, tell, me what, tell me what happened. Oh, man, that's horrible. Oh, yeah, David won't have time to see you. That's horrible. If I was king, man, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. And so he would... So discontent, like David was receiving people. We, we see examples where people bring cases to David and he judges them. But Absalom would stop them and say, Yeah, there's, David's not appointed anybody to receive you. So, man, that happened to you. I'm so sorry. I mean, if I was king, man, it'd be very different. We, we would deal with this. And then he'd send them back home. And as he, so he's sowing discontent with David and elevate him, elevating himself in the eyes of the people. And as a result, we're told that he stole the hearts. Of the people. He stoles the hearts of the people of Israel, 2 Samuel 15 6. He does this for a while and then eventually he takes a trip to Hebron, which is the city where David was originally anointed king. So he's going to the same city where David was anointed king in place of Saul and he goes there and he goes under false pretenses. He makes up a story, tells his dad, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go to Hebron. I made a vow. It's fine. I'm, I'll be there. Don't worry about it. And he goes to Hebron and then he sends spies throughout the whole land with this message. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, start yelling, Absalom is king at Hebron. So this is a coup, right? Like He's trying to like, like make it look like he's getting anointed where David got anointed. And, he, and you hear the trumpet, and all of his supporters start going, Absalom is king! Absalom is king! And everybody's supposed to go, oh, I guess Absalom's king, and go along with it. That's the plan. He invites 200 prominent men of Jerusalem to feast with him at Hebron. As a show of his popularity, 1511. He wins over Ahithophel. Now, here's Ahithophel is one of David's counselors. He's been with him from the beginning. He's he's one of David's most trusted advisors. In fact, in chapter 1623, this is what it says Ahithophel's counsel was so respected that his words were like the words of God. Like, that's how wise and and, and uh, prudent this counselor was, his word, when he speaks, everybody's like, we're doing that. That's just a great idea. And Absalom wins Ahithophel over and, he betray, and Ahithophel betrays David. And we're told in 1512 that the conspiracy grew strong. So a messenger comes to tell David that the people have all gone over to Absalom. Ahithophel, all of these prominent men of Jerusalem, the common people with their grievances, all of them are on Absalom's side at Hebron and David sees what's happening and he goes, I gotta get out of here. They're coming for me. And so he flees with his household, and he's weeping as he's running out of the city, up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes, leaving behind a few trusted friends as spies in Jerusalem, like the high priest's sons stay behind as spies. Now, as so, you got the situation. Ahithophel, Absalom, the prominent men, they're all against David, and he's running away. And as he's leaving, a man named Ziba comes to him and gives him bread and fruit and wine and you're thinking oh this is good this is a things are looking up now Ziba is a servant of King Saul we met him back in Second Samuel nine after Saul was dead David was looking around to try to show some kindness to the members of Saul's household and there weren't very many left and so he comes to Ziba Saul's servant and says hey is there anybody left of Saul's house that I could show mercy and kindness to and Ziba's like well yeah there's Mephibosheth that's Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, he's a cripple. He's lame, which means he wasn't very respected, right? So, yeah, there's him. And David's like, that's great. That's great. I'm going to give all of Saul's land to Mephibosheth, and he's going to have a seat at my table. And Ziba, just like you serve Saul, you're going to serve him. You and all of your sons and all of your servants, you serve Ziba from now on, and he's got a seat at my table. Yes, I can do kindness to Mephibosheth. So that's who Mephibosheth is. Now, Ziba comes with all of this entourage, all of these gifts and David says to him, Ziba, where's your master? Where's, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, he, he stayed back in Jerusalem because he thinks he's about to get his kingdom back. You got that? The guy that David, the cripple that David lifted up after he had taken the kingdom... That guy who David had showered with kindness and given a seat at his table, David's running away in his hour of need, and Ziba comes and says, yeah, Mephibosheth, he thinks he's going to get more from Absalom than from you, so he stayed back. He thinks that this is his opportunity. He's not here. Abandoning David in his time of need. And then, to top it off, as he's leaving, after, okay, he has that conversation with Ziba, very disheartening, and then as he's going out, a man named Shimei, also from Saul's house, comes out and starts throwing rocks at him and the entourage, and cursing him. And he's saying stuff like this. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all of the blood of the house of Saul, has given the kingdom to your son Absalom. Your evil is upon your own head, you man of blood. And just chunking rocks as they go. In other words, David, God is cursing you. Why is this happening? Because God is cursing you for the evil that you've done. There is no more salvation for you in God, David. You hear it? You hear where Psalm 3 came from? And so David escapes Jerusalem. Absalom then enters in triumph, and this is the first thing he does when he gets there. He makes a brazen statement about what he thinks of his father. David had left behind 10 of his wives, his concubines, to take care of the palace, and Absalom goes and sets up a tent And he takes all 10 of those concubines and he takes them into his tent. You follow me? And in doing so, the the biblical phrase for this would be uncovering your father's nakedness, exposing him to open shame. I'm doing it, where, and and it accents this in the text. Everybody saw this. Like in the sight of all of Israel, Absalom says, look what I'm about to do to my dad. Watch. Okay. So do you see how that universe, that, 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 universal, that story makes the universal song real, like more real about what David's facing here? And do you see how the particulars of David's story help us to make the resonance of Psalm 3 for our situations? Like, think about this. For example, notice the range of people who are rising against David. You've got his son, Absalom. And that's shocking in itself because this is a son of David. And we just learned, right, last week we talked about how the son of David is going to sit on the throne forever. So that's the expectation, son of David sitting on a throne forever, and here's the son of David brazenly violating his father and trying to kill him. Like that's uh, on Friday at our seminar on mental health, Matthew Lapine uh, mentioned that trauma is a narrative collapse. It's when the story that we tell ourselves runs into a reality that we cannot integrate. This is a narrative collapse. The son of David is meant to be David's heir and successor, seated on the throne forever, and here's a son of David doing what? So you got David's son usurping the throne, uncovering his father's nakedness, and threatening to kill him. Not only David's son, though, but David's trusted friend, his counselor, Ahithophel, who had been in his court for decades. And then we have Mephibosheth, the cripple that he'd shown kindness to. And then all of the people of Israel, those prominent men of Jerusalem who are flocking to Absalom. And then, to top it off, this random member of Saul's household who adds insult to injury and mocks and taunts David as he flees. And at that point, you, I mean, as I'm picturing David leaving, bad news after bad news after bad news, Mephibosheth's gone, and then Shimei throwing rocks and cursing, and it's just kind of like, really, God? Like Really, that too? Did I really need that? Like, that too, is that, that one more piece, did you have to throw that too? And that's how we feel, Right? Family can become our foes. Friends and counselors can become our foes. People that we've helped and shown kindness to can rise against us and abandon us. Even random strangers can add insult to injury. Just one thing after another. Everything is going wrong. Everything is hard. And then your dog dies. Or your transmission goes out or your basement floods, and you're just going, really, God? That too? The transmission is rising against me too? And we look around, and we feel what David feels. Look how many people are opposed to me. Look how many things are rising against me, and everybody is writing me off. They're saying that God has forsaken me, and from where I sit, it kind of looks like they're right. But that's not the only way that David's particulars make this psalm resonate. Like if you read Psalm 3 on its own, one thing, this is how I thought about this psalm for a long time, that this is a song for the righteous, for the super saints, for those who have been faithful to God. But when you read it in light of 2 Samuel, you realize this psalm was written for sinners, by sinners. Absalom's rebellion was the result of David's sin. In fact, when Nathan had confronted David about the Bathsheba-Uriah thing, this is what Nathan told him. Because you've done this evil to Bathsheba and Uriah, the sword will never depart from your house. And he also says, I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor, and he will lie with them in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing in broad daylight. That's judgment from God. So Absalom's rebellion... His brazen violation of David's concubines is the result of David's sin. And that's as old as Genesis, right? Like Adam, so like Adam, David sees something that was forbidden. And like Adam, David's sons kill one another and rebel against God and their fellow men. And like in Genesis, sin and destruction then spread everywhere and violence covers the whole land because of what Adam did. David's living that story again. And then what's more, Ahithophel, you want to know why Ahithophel joins up with Absalom, I think? Let me tell you about Ahithophel. You know who he is? Bathsheba's grandfather. Bathsheba's grandfather. Why do you think he joins up with Absalom? Because of the shame and dishonor that David had brought on his household in that horrific incident in chapter 12. Not only that. Notice something else about this situation. I hadn't mentioned this before. I wanted to set it up this way. I said earlier that David is bringing his felt reality to God, like what his perspective on things, but that felt reality is not always the same as actual reality because we can be wrong, okay? David sees that many are rising against him, but how many? Absalom certainly is. Ahithophel certainly is. Shimei, definitely. But you remember those 200 prominent men? With Absalom, 2 Samuel 15, is explicit and says, those 200 men were innocent and ignorant of Absalom's plot. They weren't on Absalom's side. They, he just invited them to a feast. And when the prince invites you to a feast, you go to the feast. Absalom's using that in his propaganda campaign. And David sees 200 men with him and thinks they're all on his side. But the text says they had no idea what was going on. Many are rising against me, but not that many. You want to know something else? Mephibosheth, remember him? Abandons David in his time of need. We find out later when David returns to Jerusalem after his triumph, we find out Mephibosheth comes to him and he's he's all disheveled. And he comes to him and he says, I I, I didn't abandon you. I I had asked Ziba, I can't saddle my own donkey. So I asked my servant, go saddle my donkey. I want to go be with David. And Ziba said, This is an opportunity. And he jumped on the donkey, goes to David, and lies about Mephibosheth. Why? Because he wants the land that David had given to the cripple. He was tired of serving the cripple. And so he slanders. But David, in that moment when he's fleeing, all he thinks is Mephibosheth's gone. That's felt reality, but it's not actual reality. You follow me? Shimei's curse. The Lord is judging you, you man of blood becomes a chorus in David's ears. Many are saying, no, Shimei is saying. But it sounds like many when you're running away. In other words, this is not a psalm for super saints. David's foes, Absalom and Ahithophel, are the result of his own sin. And David's felt reality isn't actual reality. He overestimates his enemies. He exaggerates their influence. He believes the reports, and he feels the world crashing in around him when it's not. And isn't that how it is for us? If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes our hardships are at least partially owing to our own sinfulness and our actions. Like we've contributed. How did we get in this mess? We did something wrong, something foolish, something sinful. And if we're honest, often in our low and hard moments, we know that our felt reality is an actual reality. We don't see things clearly in the pit. We catastrophize. We feel that things are worse than they really are. We draw false conclusions and believe lies about ourselves and other people. It's because some of those that we feel are against us aren't really against us. And here's the point. Here's the big point. None of that, none of that keeps David from crying out to God. Not his past sin, not his present ignorance. He brings all of it to the Lord. He tells God what is happening from his sinful, limited, fallen, weak perspective, and he calls upon the Lord to save him and do something about it. And he's confident God will do it. That's the first step. That That was the big one. The other ones will be much shorter. Tell God what's happening. Bring your felt reality to him, even when it's flawed. That's step one. Step two. After you do that, remember who God is and what he's done. Not just who he is in general, but who he is for you in this moment. Like, who do you need God to be for you right now with these foes in front of you? Who is that? Notice what David highlights here. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. Why do you need a shield? Because many are rising against me. I need a shield. David needs protection, and God is a shield, a protector. But not only a shield, David says, my glory Shimei says, God has abandoned you. You are dishonored. You are shamed. He's turned his back. It's dark where you are, David. And David says, God, you're my glory, my treasure, my brightness. I need you to be that for me now while I'm running away. But not only a shield and not only glory, this is my favorite, the lifter of my head. Isn't that a great image? Like what happens what happens when we face hardships? What do we do? This, right? Shoulders slump forward. Heads, head and eyes go down. Our eyes are downcast, right? And we're here. We go here, right? When, when you get the phone call that your brothers are dead.
0: It's like Grace got that
1: phone call this week. And you know what she did? She went here. Downcast. And this this psalm says, God is the lifter of your head. He reaches down. He grabs your chin. and He pulls it up. He says, look at me. I'm your shield.
0: I'm your glory.
1: I'm here with you. So you bring your felt reality to God and then you remember who is he and who do you need him to be right now? That's what you do. And not just who he is. You remember what he's done for you. That's what, especially recently, this is really important. Here's what I mean. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. And then I think he specifies how God answered. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Here's what's happening. When David's fleeing Jerusalem, this is another part of the story. He hears Ahithophel is on Absalom's side. And he, that's wise and shrewd advisor. David knows he's in trouble. And David prays in chapter 15, and he says, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He prays. He cries aloud to God, bring that counsel to nothing. And then, this is important, he tells one of his faithful counselors, a man named Hushai, Stay behind, infiltrate the court. Pretend that you're going over to Absalom's side. Tell him that you're going to serve him now. And the reason I want you to do that is I want you to defeat the council of Ahithophel. So Absalom then comes and he asks for Ahithophel's advice. What should I do? I got the kingdom now, David's running. What do I do? And Ahithophel says, "Here's my advice. Give me 12,000 men. I'm going to chase David down. He's weak, he's tired, he's discouraged. I'll come upon him when they're sleeping." All of his men will scatter. I will only kill him. I'll spare everyone else because you're merciful, and then I'll bring them all back to you like a bride coming to her husband, and everybody will acclaim you as king. That's what we should do. And let me tell you something. That was really good advice. David's on the ropes. Finish him. That's Ahithophel's advice. Give me men. I don't need many. I don't need hundreds of thousands. I need 12,000. I'll take care of it. Just it's, it's, It's an assassination. That's what we need. Let's go do that. And this is really good advice. Hushai standing there and Absalom turns to him and says, what do you think about that? And Hushai says, I think this is bad advice. It's terrible advice. Here's what will happen. You know, David, David's not weak and discouraged. David's a mighty man. He's a warrior. He's got warriors with him. He's probably not sleeping in the middle of his camp. He's like in a cave in camouflage somewhere. You're never going to find him. And so what will happen is you'll chase down. You'll get in a fight with his mighty men. Some of those mighty men will kill your men, and then everybody's going to hear that you got defeated, and then people are going to wonder, should we go on with Absalom or not? This is a risk, Absalom. Instead, what you should do is we should stay here in Jerusalem. We should call all Israel together. Instead of an assassination, let's get a big sledgehammer. Let's get everybody. Then we'll go find David, and wherever he's at, we'll just smash him. But let's just wait for a bit till we gather everybody. Okay? And Absalom hears that, and he goes, hmm, Hushai, your, your advice. He was, he was on Ahithophel's side, and Hushai says, that's better advice. I'm with you now. That's our plan. And here's what the passage says. 17.14 of 2 Samuel tells us that Absalom listened to Hushai, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. In other words, this was a direct answer to David's prayer. So again, notice in Psalm 3, David cries out to God, bring Ahithophel's counsel to nothing. Just give me one more day. And then he lies down and he goes to sleep, weak and weary and discouraged. That's true. And he doesn't know whether he's going to wake up the next day or whether Ahithophel's going to cut his head off. And then he wakes up because the Lord literally sustained him through the shrewd counsel of Hushai. Now notice how this helps us, right? How we should think about our prayers. First, you should cry aloud to the Lord to bring for big things and little things. Like, God, just give me one more night's sleep. Just give me one more day. And then, second, prayer's not at odds with you doing something. Like, David doesn't just pray. He leaves Hushai behind with a plan. Right? Which means you can pray daily for daily bread and then go to the store and buy daily bread. Or you can ask God to provide and then go to work. Or you can pray for the darkness to lift and then go out and get some exercise to help your depression. Or pray for relief from chronic anxiety and then take your medication. Or ask God to heal your disease and then go to the doctor. Pray for God to resolve the conflict in your family and then go have the hard conversation. You see what I'm saying here? The prayer and the action go together, and the prayer is the power of the action. It's what makes the action effective, which is why the third step of that, you cry, you act. When God answers, you thank Him, not your action. David doesn't say, I lay down and slept, I woke again, because Hushai's a boss. He says, The Lord sustained me. The Lord did that because he was going to bring the counsel to nothing in answer to my prayer. Third, after we bring our felt reality to God, after we remember who God's in and what he's done, you face our fears. We trust him and we ask him for big things. David, God had answered David's prayer for one more day. David takes heart and he says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. And I read this not as this like, triumphant, cocky, like, I will not be afraid, but I, I will not be afraid. Like, it's a fight. I see they're still, they're still there. They're still rising against me. I'm not going to be afraid of them. I'm not going to be afraid of them. He sustained me last night. I'm not going to be afraid of them. It's a fight, and it's a fight between two narratives, right? One narrative is Shime, no salvation for you and God. Other narrative, save me save me. You'll save me, won't you? Despite my sin, despite my ignorance, despite all of that, you'll still save me, won't you? That's what David does. He fights and he asks for big things. Arise, save, help. And then he entrusts his cause to God. He says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. I don't have to strike them. You strike them. I don't have to break their teeth. You'll break their teeth. This is an imprecatory psalm, a cursing psalm. You break the teeth of the wicked. And this is important because in the story, when Shimei was cursing, one of David's mighty men was like, hey, can we go cut that dog's head off? Like, that literally says that dog. Like, that's a dead dog. Let's go cut his head off. And David's like, no, 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 wait. Maybe God told him to curse me. Maybe he's right. Or, so maybe he's right. Or, maybe God will see him cursing me and see my patience, and he will repay good to me because I endured that evil. I don't know which story is true. I don't know if God's about to drop a hammer on me, and I am cursed, or I don't know if God's going to use this curse and elevate me again. I don't know. I'm just going to entrust it to him. Don't touch Shimei. And he says, God's going to break the teeth of the wicked, which is what happens. Here's what happens to David's foes. Absalom heeds Hushai's advice, but he goes to war with David, and he's slain by Joab, get this, when his hair gets caught in a tree. Take that. Me and Eastward ain't getting caught in no tree. So Absalom's done. Ahithophel, when his advice isn't heeded, you know what Ahithophel does? He's so distraught that nobody listened to him anymore. He puts his affairs in in order, goes home, and hangs himself, depriving Absalom of one of his best counselors. Mephibosheth, we've already talked about him. He was restored when he came back. and said, David, I'm on your side. I was always on your side. Ziba Ziba lied. And David elevates him again. And then Shimei, when David enters in triumph, Shimei comes back. He's the first one to meet David, and he falls on his face, and he repents, using the same words that David did. I've sinned. That's what David said to Nathan when he was confronted. Shimei comes and says, I've sinned, David. And then David shows him the same mercy That God had poured out when David sinned. So he won the man who cursed him. He didn't kill him. He didn't break his teeth. So some of them, they got their teeth broken. Some of them became friends. But David entrusted it to God. And that brings us to the resolution and to the table. This is the fourth. The first step, we bring our felt reality to God. Second, we remember who God is and what he's done for us. And then third... We ask for big things, we trust big things, and we entrust our situation to God. And then fourth, David ends with this triumphant cry, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. This psalm is a psalm for sinners, for the weak and the weary and the ignorant like David. But here's what was really interesting in my study this week. The story behind it, has some remarkable anticipations of another story. Listen, David faces foes and opposition from his family, his friends, and from the people of Israel. Just as a thousand years later, the true son of David faces opposition from his family, who think he's out of his mind, from his friends, who fall away and abandon him in his hour of need, and from the crowds of people who cry out, crucify, crucify, crucify. David fled Jerusalem, weeping as he ascended the Mount of Olives. It's very specific. Just as a thousand years later, the true son of David left Jerusalem, ascended the Mount of Olives, and wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. David was betrayed by a close friend who eventually goes and hangs himself. Just as a thousand years later, the true son of David was betrayed by a close friend who went and hanged himself. David is scorned and mocked and cursed by a stranger who tells him that there's no salvation for you in God. But that stranger eventually repents and receives mercy from David when he comes into his kingdom. Just as a thousand years later, the true son of David is scorned and mocked and cursed by a stranger, a thief on a cross who eventually repents and is remembered by the Lord when he comes into his kingdom. This universal song, written at a particular time and place when David fled from Absalom, echoes through the ages and lands on Jesus, and it lands at the cross where Christ lays down and sleeps and wakes again three days later because the Lord sustained him. And because of that, weak and weary sinners like us can pray Psalm 3 because we remember what this table is all about, who Christ is, what he's done for us. Here we remember salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are felt realities in this room that I cannot fathom. I'm just totally guessing. I'm, I'm in the dark So I'm bringing, that's my felt reality that I'm bringing to you. There's pain, hardship, opposition, anxiety, depression, sin that I have no idea about. And so I bring it to you on behalf of these people and say, God, be our shield, be our glory, lift our heads and then save us. Arise, O Lord, save us. Strike our enemies on the cheek. Break their teeth or convert them to yourself because salvation belongs to you. May your blessing be on this people. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite the pastors to come to serve the bread. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.